to an extent, it depends on the job. But yeah, like, like should meet like, where if the workers are remote, then management can and should be remote, and HR can and should be remote. Uh, likewise, hybrid, likewise in person. Um, but I'd, I'd double down on, on my comment of there are a lot of mature established organizations that are resisting uh, remote work that I think will be forced more and more in that direction from a talent attraction and retention perspective. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. It has become a cliche to say that the last few years have brought unprecedented change to how we do business. A worldwide pandemic, supply chain breakdowns, learning to work from home, and then in many cases, negotiating the return to the office, it's been stressful. And it will be no surprise to my listeners that much of that stress in the workplace has found its way to the HR department. And HR people are done, y'all. I hear it from HR reps all the way up to senior executives. The burnout is real. To discuss with me how HR professionals can maintain their sanity, regain the love of what they do, and engage to move their organizations forward, I'm joined by Andrew Bartlow. Andrew leads Series B Consulting, which helps businesses to articulate their people strategy and accelerate their growth while navigating rapid change. He also founded the People Leader Accelerator, a leadership development program for startup HR leaders. He's also the co-author of Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Andrew. Mike, thank you. Really good to be here with you. So a global pandemic, work from home, the racial reckoning, the great resignation, 9% inflation. All of these things fell right into HR's lap, one after the other. Is it any wonder that many people leaders feel like all they've done for the last two and a half years is react? It's the perfect storm, um, both in business as well as for the HR profession. Absolutely. On the other hand, I think it's also the golden age of human resources, where all of these events and issues occurring at the same time make the human resources profession really step forward um, to, to be shown to be you know, one of the leaders uh, in helping organizations move through these complicated times. Right. I, it's for, I've been in HR as long as you have. And throughout my career, I've heard the steady drumbeat of, I want a seat at the table. Why don't they give HR a seat at the table? Blah, blah, blah. And I've always argued, you earn your seat at the table. And uh, you, you, by showing value and understanding the business and, and how your, you know, your people programs uh, lead to the success of the business. But I think most of the people who weren't ready to, for that seat at the table got run over the last few years. I mean, we were expected to be medical experts and then Congress passed a whole bunch of laws and we had to become experts in these new laws and the, while the ink was still wet. And uh, and then we've had the resign great resignation, all of this stuff. So 
I think it is a great opportunity, but I think a lot of HR folks are still, and a lot of business leaders in general are still struggling with the rapid pace of change and, and trying to determine what's next and spending so much time worrying about what's next that they're not managing what they've got right in front of them. What would you tell a, a business leader, HR or otherwise, about business planning in this environment? Well, I, I think it starts with have a plan. You know, in, in this environment, even with so much happening around us, so so many extraneous, um, distracting, major events uh, in the zeitgeist happening, start with have a plan. What is your business plan? What is your people plan? And ensure that you're continuing to make progress towards it, even with all of these headwinds and challenges that we're facing. So you know, have a plan and don't get, don't get overly distracted by what's happening around us. Be ready to pivot, be ready to tack as needed, um, but, but stick, stick with your core goals and ensure that you, you know, don't lose sight of them. So when our circumstances are constantly changing and, uh, you know, and as they have been, and how do you, you know, how do you tell your clients when you're working with them to, to, to maintain focus on that plan while it seems like there's so much uncertainty that maybe there wasn't six months ago around that plan? Yeah, well, hey, I'd, I'd start with just having the plan puts you in the upper decile of organizations. They're, they're, most organizations um, have all-hands meetings, have investor pitch decks, have board meeting decks. Very few top HR leaders have a documented people plan. What are the three or so most important things that we're going to work on? And what are the small handful of projects and initiatives that, uh, uh, that will support those few most important things? So you know, I, I'm going to triple down on this. It starts with having a plan. And that plan should be connected to what is the business trying to accomplish, right? And so if you have that simple plan, and I'm not talking about a 100-page McKinsey or Bain strategy deck. I'm talking about a one-pager uh, that might look like an org chart with your company goals at the very top and then your HR uh, priorities supporting those company goals. You know, Think of it like a waterfall. Just having that one-pager to provide the clarity and alignment um, that your organization needs will put you in the top 10% of any organization. Um, and then as circumstances change, it can become pretty easy to swap out an initiative or a goal as needed. Uh, but heck, start with the plan and write it down and that'll help you ensure that there's clarity and alignment throughout your organization. Yeah, so as a as a people leader, whether it's the you know smaller business and the owners really running that show, or it's a larger company and HR is is running the people function, what are the two or three things you think should be in that plan? I mean, certainly the company has goals and plans, and we're going to work to execute those. But what are the two or three things that the people leader really needs to focus in on and consider as you know as they plan as they do their their people planning? Sure. Well, well, hey, I, I would uh, uh, once again start with uh, the organizational goals. 
um, if the planning is done in a vacuum, if HR is coming up with its plans to do HR things that are not directly connected to the most important things for that organization, that's where we get put in a corner. We, you might still be at a table, but you'll be at the little table in the corner uh, <laughs> in the same room. So our goals and priorities in HR must be directly and clearly linked to the most important goals and priorities for the organization. Otherwise, we're not meeting our full potential. Otherwise, we're not strategic operators. Uh, we're service providers. And, and that won't help us uh, meet our full potential. So it starts with aligning our goals um, to the organization's goals. So what are likely to be the organization's goals in this case? You know, one, we're always trying to increase revenue at just about any organization we're a part of, right? Two, we're probably trying to decrease cost, right? Lots of layoffs in today's environment. Um, lots of, you know, high growth companies aren't as high growth as, uh, as they were a few months ago. So controlling cost, increasing revenue, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's expansion into Europe. Maybe there's supporting a new product line, whatever it is. So figure out what those few most important things are for your organization and then tie those HR priorities to it. So if it's controlling cost, maybe there's some evaluation of your workforce planning. How many people do we need doing what, when, and maybe where, where is less relevant nowadays, but you know, understanding what's often 80% of an organization's total cost is its headcount. So how many people do we really need where doing what? Um, that, that's important. Um, so you know, figure out what your pipeline looks like, how many people you think you're gonna need to hire, how many people you think you might need to lay off. Um, that will help you get a handle on your costs. And revenue, how are you gonna generate that revenue? What's the HR team doing to support your sales and marketing and business development teams? Um, all organizations, all functions are not necessarily equal. If you're trying to drive revenue, maybe you wanna put extra attention, extra focus, extra resources, dedicate a few projects towards helping the front end revenue generating part of the business versus customer success, operations, G&A departments. Is it fair? No. Will it help your organization meet its goals? Yes. So my, my point once again is figure out what's most important for your organization and dedicate outsized, overweighted efforts towards accomplishing those things rather than some separate set of HR priorities. You hear in many organizations, well, HR is a cost center. And I, and I, I hear a lot of HR professionals say that. And we really don't contribute to revenue. We get the, the, the position recs, we fill them, we try to you know, make sure people get their benefits and we'll do our salary surveys. And, but none of that's revenue generating. What do you, when you're talking about HR contributing to revenue generation, what kind of things are you talking about? Sure. Well, I, I think, I think um, you're, you're right. And those people are right that HR does not directly sell something. We, we do not directly generate revenue. Um, whatever we do has a cost in terms of headcount or soft cost in, time, in terms of time and attention from people that we're paying or vendor spend that we have. Uh, 
However, we are an enabling function. We can increase, we have the potential to increase the productivity or the effectiveness of other departments. And so what can we do to help your sales force be five or 10% more productive? What are the things that we could do? What are the things that we could do to help a new hire more quickly ramp up and onboard and, and be more successful and generate more revenue? So there are very specific programs and initiatives that human resources can design or implement that can directly contribute uh, to revenue generation. We're an enabler, we're not a deliverer in those areas, but that's where a lot of HR organizations um, you know, often miss out. If we're, if we're bringing solutions that are searching for a problem, like, oh, I have this great survey tool or great performance management tool, let's get an annual subscription to Lattice or CultureAmp or, or whatever. Hey, those are great tools, do you really need that tool right now? What problem are you trying to solve? Uh, I'd, I'd suggest that we, we start at the top with it, which is the org goals, and then we decide what tools we need to use rather than, you know, unfortunately we often, you know, have, have these bright shiny objects that we, uh, we chase around uh, looking for a problem to solve. You work with a lot of startups and fast scaling companies and, and they're constantly, undergoing change. In fact, oft, you know, I've worked with them and often from the first time I meet founders to the next time I talk to them three months ago, they're in a different business altogether. I mean, it's just, you know, and some of those, those are pretty, you know, large pivots as they figure out what the, what the marketplace really needs and, and, and how receptive it is. But what can HR leaders in more traditionally stable companies learn from you know, who are, you know, the stable companies are now facing constant change. It's, you know, the last two or three years have really proven that. What can they learn from a startup experience? I uh, like to think that enterprise mature organizations know what good looks like, know, know what high quality execution and implementation look like. And startups know what fast feels like. So, you know, to your question, um, more mature organizations can learn from that pace and from that ability to pivot in different market dynamics. And so right now we are in a time of change, uh, the great resignation, the great reshuffling, what do, what do you call it, that uh, remote work, so many more stable, more mature, more established organizations are continuing to resist these changes rather than embracing them and pivoting. And so that, that's a big opportunity uh, for bigger organizations is to figure out what's likely to stay with us or ride the wave of decreased cost due to less commercial office space, of uh, lower labor costs due to geographic arbitrage. You don't have to hire people in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live. You can go hire them in, uh, in Atlanta and, and sometimes pay half the cost. Or Why Mexico City. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You, Well, you know, just even the, you know, geographic arbitrage inside the United States can be dramatic. You don't have mm -hmm. to go 
uh, to another country or deal with uh, you know new time zones and new languages. So you know, remote work has tremendous possibilities that I've seen a lot of established organizations continue to resist. Yeah, let's talk about that because in a lot of my conversations with HR folks at conferences or online, a lot of them are demanding, especially managers and and lower, you know, and more frontline HR folks are demanding to work from home, uh, just like the rest of the employees are. And I keep making the argument that that's a big mistake for an HR department, that if you've got operations that are in, especially if you've got a production environment where people are having to come in, but if your leadership, the rest of the leadership team is in there, HR needs to be there. That's the only way you're keeping your pulse on the organization. If, if the organization's in the building, if the leadership's and the decisions are being made and the conversations are being had, I think HR needs to be there, you know, and maybe you work, you know, hybrid or something like that. But HR, if, to stay plugged in, you've got to build those connections and you're going to do that better if you're face-to-face. Now, I'm a big believer in remote. I mean, I'm an all-remote company and we've, we, we bend over backwards to make sure that, you know, we're, com- and we're in constant conversation with one another. We've got one-to-ones and we're use, we use, you know, video and everything else. But I think if in a large organization, if the, if your customers as HR, which is your leadership and, and your strategy makers are in the building, HR needs to be there. Give me your feedback on that. Yeah, I think at a, at a high level, I agree, but like in many things, there's some nuance. So it depends on the role. If you are focused as an HR generalist doing program rollout and policy interpretation and employee relations investigations, absolutely there's, there's greater value in being where your workers are. If, you're, if your frontline workers are in a physical location and your leadership is in a physical location, then HR, without a doubt, should generally be in that same physical location. Like, don't don't set the example in the wrong direction by being the only people out of the building. Um, but there's some jobs that don't need to be there, right? Maybe you're at scale and you have a, a you know call center customer service group that handles some benefits changes. Do they need to physically be in the building or could their work be transacted just fine over phone, email, video? Sure. Payroll. Do you really want anybody walking over to payroll's desk and looking over their uh, shoulder asking them questions? Probably not. So I'd say to to an extent, it depends on the job. Um, But yeah, like like should should meet like, where if the workers are remote, then management can and should be remote and HR can and should be remote. Uh, likewise, hybrid, likewise in person. Um, but I'd, I'd double down on, on my comment of there are a lot of mature established organizations that are resisting uh, remote work that I think will be forced more and more in that direction from a talent attraction and retention perspective. Would you rather be sourcing for these hard-to-fill jobs from just the 30-mile radius around your physical office that you pay a heck of a lot of money for, or would you like to source worldwide or nationwide and potentially pay less, both in terms of office rent uh, as well as in terms of base pay, uh, by finding talent in lower cost-of-labor areas? So it'll it'll become a no-brainer 
but we're continuing to see the resistance. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 55 and enter the keyword Bartlow. That's B-A-R-T-L-O-W. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Andrew Bartlow. And so I think what you were basically saying is a pushback to, to what I my position was really the transactional HR folks can probably be off-site, but the more strategic, the planning, the development uh, folks need to be where, wherever their leaders are and wherever the rest of the organization is. And so if they're, if the leaders are there on site and uh, then, then certainly the, the HR planners need to be there as well. If you're the head of the HR function and all the other senior leaders are in one place and you're not there, you're, you're not, you're not at the table any longer. Yeah. You got to be in the room, actually show up physically in the room to be, you know, to sit at that table. That's right. And I think you make a really good point uh, about work from home, not just as a, a talent attraction for your local talent pool, but a talent expansion as, you know, expanding that talent pool out beyond, uh, you know, especially if you're in, in, in Silicon Valley or in New York City or any of the major, more expensive metropolitan areas, I think, um, you know, I know, you know, especially software developers, folks like they're moving, they're moving to the country. I mean, they, they know the best ones know they can work anywhere. And, um, and so if you're stuck with the people who are forced, the talent that's forced to come into the office, you're, you may not be getting the best talent available at the, in, in the next two or three years. What do you think that workplaces, the average workplace is going to look like in three years after this is all settled? Uh, and this remote work, hybrid work, and all of that. What, what's your prediction for you know the expectations of job seekers and, and what employers are going to have to do to, to match those expectations? Um, well, I think I'd start with it won't be settled in the next two or three years. It'll it'll continue to work itself out. I think there will be a continuing trend towards uh, more remote, more hybrid over time as companies figure it out and their long-term commercial office leases expire. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I do not want to be in commercial real estate in about 18 months. So I I wouldn't want to be there now. Um, Although I know plenty of people who are and, you know, continue to do just fine. There, there should be reduced need. Now that said, there's likelihood that um, office space will be considered a perk moving forward. So not everyone has space in their home in the suburbs to have a home office. Um, a lot of people uh, can and, and do benefit from having dedicated workspace with a, a good private spot to do work from in a focused way. So 
potentially there is the rebirth of a of a WeWork like mm-hmm. uh, world where there are miniature hubs, um, you know, that that are spaced um, around around the country or around the world. I've I've seen more and more of that start to take place. Um, I've also seen a trend towards um, intentional gathering spaces. Um, General Electric back in the day had Crotonville. Uh, Washington Mutual had Cedarbrook. Um, Salesforce just invested in a big new campus uh, in among the Redwoods in Southern California uh, called the 1440 uh, University. Um, and these are you know, corporate meeting centers where people who may be living wherever come together for learning, for training, for meetings, for gatherings, and intentionally build relationships. Does that need to be in an office that you go to five days a week? No. Um, that leaves a lot of people out that are that are working remotely. But can you invest some of those dollars, actually far fewer of those dollars, to reserve far less space? And instead of paying Hilton, Hyatt, and Marriott for your conference space, uh, you get a dedicated space for your organization that has your history and your artifacts there where people can come together and rub elbows in the hallway or break bread together. I think there will be more and more of that um, type of corporate center activity that doesn't necessarily need to be in some downtown location that people commute to every day. You talked about how comp is going to be affected by the ability to, you know, not have to hire somebody in Silicon Valley. I can hire somebody in Ohio or wherever. What's that going to do to the workforce in Silicon Valley and in these other places where people already, you know, have set down roots and it's expensive to live there. Um, and we're seeing, I mean, I'm in Texas, pew, pew. So I, we're seeing all you Californians moving here. And uh, in fact, uh, I think you can, U-Haul will almost pay you to drive a U-Haul from Texas to California because they can't keep them there. Um, but with that happening, what do you think that's going to do to, to workforce, you know, to the workforces that, you know, those folks who are, have roots in those more expensive locations? Well, I think the people with roots will stay rooted uh, and the people that can move will move. Why, why wouldn't you move if housing is 70% less between the Bay Area and um, major metros in Texas? Why wouldn't you move if state taxes are 15% in California and 0% in Texas, Tennessee, and Florida? Um, it, it's, it's happening. Um, I, I would myself, I'd, I'd love to move. Um, I have two little girls, uh, here and an, and an ex that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to move away from though. Uh, but boy, I'm already planning my move once, uh, once they're out of high school. Yeah. 10 years ago, I put a 10 year plan in place for when my last kid graduates high school, which was about two months ago and it's wheels up starting this fall for me and my wife. Uh, so I'll just tell you, there's light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't think empty nester uh, syndrome is going to affect us negatively at all. Yeah. But so right now, inflation's at nine percent. Wages are really getting. There's a lot of wage pressure to push thing, you know, to push that up. Um, but what do you tell a company that says, "We know this inflation's temporary." And I know that if I lock in, if I if I change my salary bands and start bringing people on board at these higher 
you know, wages that they're demanding right now. I'm just screwing myself a year down the road, two years down the road when when we're not facing this pressure. Because most business leaders have never been through this kind of you know inflation. They didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s. And so what what, do you, what are you telling your clients as you as as you have a conversations around comp and uh, and inflation? Yeah, and I've had more than a few of those uh, recently. You know, inflation is similar to cost of living. Cost of living is different than cost of labor. So you, th- you think of uh, cost of living increases versus base pay increases. It's basically only unions and the government or government unions that look at COLA increases. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're looking at uh, cost of labor benchmarking and market pricing. And uh, the data that, that I've seen from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and uh, World at Work does a, does a nice job. It's a uh, compensation professional association of uh, pulling some of that together. I've read a couple of different articles that even though uh, inflation is bumping around 9% at the moment, a lot of that is driven by energy. Um, much of the core housing data, uh, although housing prices have gone way up, housing has not moved by 9% in terms of you know actual real cost. And the cost of um, compensation is up around 4.1%, which is quite a bit higher than it had been in prior years, but it's nowhere near 9%. So I, I'd suggest that most organizations want to stay competitive. And that means continue to be competitive against other organizations that have similar jobs. You're not trying to compete with inflation and cost of living. You're trying to compete with cost of labor. So continue to benchmark, continue to market price. You know, keep a keep an eye on how wages are moving. But why would any organization want to get too far out in front of that? And so there may be an educational opportunity for workers that talk about uh, how much inflation is is going up. Uh, but but ultimately, uh, it doesn't serve an employer to pay more than they have to, to attract and retain the workers that they need. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that a lot of employees don't get is a fair wage isn't a magic number. It's the fair wage is what you agree to come work for. And the day you don't think you're getting paid fairly, go find another job that'll pay you better for the same work and or do different kind of work. And, and I think, uh, I think a lot of, especially my business owner friends have a hard, cause they want to do the right thing and they want to, and they want to, they want to feel virtuous in how they, they, they relate to their employees. And I think that's all, that's all great. But at the end of the day, your labor cost is your, you know, one of your most significant costs and most for most businesses. And either you raise prices to, to cover the, you know, your, your, your wages, or you make your people a lot more productive. And, uh, and that's sometimes the better investment, find more productive people and, uh, and don't let them, you know, don't let your employees get too bogged down in, um, you know, in, in their, in their own security, I guess. And, and, you know, uh, let there be a little, you know, pressure makes diamonds. And so let there be some of that. The ugly truth about compensation is you'll never get a better raise than by changing companies. Yeah. Right when you when you go through a job change or an employer change, it's typically a fifteen to twenty percent increase. 
um, a good raise at a current employer is 5%. String two or three of those together, and it's massively to a worker's benefit to change employers. Um, of course, mitigated by you know trying to be aware of you know what your resume looks like and how how choppy is it, how much of a job hopper are you? Could that affect you in your ability to get the next job? Um, in some parts of the country, that's an issue. In other parts of the country, it's not odd whatsoever to see people with a new job every 15 months. I think a lot of folks jump for money and land thinking the grass is going to be greener and they're in a worse situation. They're less satisfied with their working circumstances. And I, I think during the Great Resignation, I know uh, that I've, I've talked to plenty of folks who, who thought they were moving to a better deal just because the, there was an extra zero at the end of their paycheck. But when, once they got there, they realized there's a reason this company has to pay for this, you know, this kind of, ta- you know, pay this for that kind of talent. And so, but if I think we're probably already in a recession uh, and just, you know, we just, we just don't know it yet, but what is your advice to employers who are trying to do their workforce planning, looking down the road? Okay, we've got this plan. This is where we thought revenue was going to be. We've got all this inflation driving all our costs, but we think a recession is coming. We don't know necessarily when, and usually, unless you're one of the canary in the coal mine industries, you, you find out a little later than you, than you want to. What's your advice about how you plan your workforce your workforce population, the skills and talents you need when a recession uh, may be coming? I think basic scenario planning is appropriate in you know any sort of budgeting process, both financial and headcount budgeting. So what's base case? What could good look like? And what could, you know, in this case, recessionary uh, revenue look like with demand down? So, you know, maybe you Maybe you don't have a good case. Maybe you just have two versions of bad case in, uh, in this scenario. Like, what's your base plan? And then, you know, C and D um, for you. But, um, you know, I, I think if you do some basic scenario planning, you let demand shape revenue and ensure the costs are paired up with that, you can get a handle on what your workforce can and should look like. Whether you're an employer of 20 people or 2,200, uh, that's probably something, you know, simple, simple. Again, it doesn't need to be a six-month exercise that has outside consultants do it. Just do do some basic, you know, headcount and cost planning, uh, so that you aren't reactionary and grinding away with repeated reductions in force as right. you know potentially negative activities happen. And I think that goes HR's role, and that goes back to that understanding the business. And what the key metrics that drive the business are, and um, and if you if you don't know what those metrics are, if you don't know what the again the canary in the coal mines are, what, what are those early indicators, those leading indicators that that things may be shifting? It's it's uh, you know how can you as HR help help your leadership predict anything else if if you don't do that? And I think there's we've still got too many HR folks who are who know HR. They just don't know their business and uh, and how the company makes money and and will hopefully continue to in the future. Your your best friend as an HR professional or especially an HR business partner should be the FP&A uh, lead for your group. Uh, FP&A of course stands for financial planning and analysis. That's who typically runs the budgets. 
if you're not doing the headcount planning, they're doing it for you and may or may not be in, involving you in the process. Um, if you're at a smaller organization that doesn't have a dedicated FP&A function, uh, it's, it's probably somewhere in your finance department. Um, but your, your best friend should be in finance, in HR. And be curious. Ask the questions. What are the drivers? If you don't learn these things, you won't be a well-rounded, successful, strategic HR leader. Well, thanks for that. Thank you for joining me today, Andrew. That's all the time we have, but it was a great conversation. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guest at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.